they're doing that, I just want to encourage you to be uh, remembering in prayer this week, first of all, our sister Sue, who, Sue Sharnick, who will be leaving Wednesday uh, to head for uh, the memorial service for her son. Also, for uh, all the firefighters <laughs> that seem to be getting busier and busier each week, we now have three fires surrounding us here. We have Kalinga, we have one at Lake Nascimento, and of course, uh, Sobranus Fire up at Big Sur. Remember all them, and remember Bruce. If you don't know, Bruce spent some time in the hospital this last week with an infection, and he's now home, but uh, he's recovering. And uh, remember Debbie, and she gets to care for him. <laughs> and if he's if he's a wise guy, he'll be he'll be milking it for all he can. <laughs> I want to thank you all for being here this morning. It's great to be here this morning. And we're, I'm just praising God to hear that we now have a candidate who's going to come and speak to us as a church. And I hope you're able to be here on the 4th, and uh, be sure and let your deacons know that right away so that if, if that's not possible and we have to schedule another date, then that, that is possible too. But we look forward to what God's going to say to us through this gentleman. I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10 this morning. We're going to continue in our study of the Acts and this morning we're talking a little bit about the, the principle of more light. Now you may or may not be familiar with that, but it, it's, a, it's a principle from Scripture that kind of runs counter to our current culture, where we have all things available with no waiting. We have fast food, we have fast everything. Everything's available to us immediately on the Internet, whatever it is. But that's kind of counter to the scriptural principle of more light. It's illustrated, the principle is, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 12. We read this, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Now, as we study this book of Acts, and we compare the growth of the early church to the growth of the church today, it's pretty easy to become critical of the modern church. But the early church was not perfect by any means neither in its obedience, uh, in spite of its growth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read before that the church uh, in Jerusalem had gotten its orders, its marching orders. It said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. At Acts chapter 6, verse 7, uh, was phase 1 of the church's outreach program. It was in progress, and the church was growing greatly. Acts 6-7 tells us, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. But that was a little bit of a problem, because that was not their marching orders, specifically. The gospel didn't seem to move outside of Jerusalem, into the surrounding and distant regions, until God permitted a great persecution to come upon the church. So the beginning of phase two is seen in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, as that persecution then drives the church out of Jerusalem. Phase three begins as they take the gospel. There, was a, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So now phase three begins as the gospel is taken out to the ends of the earth. But it wasn't until a, a Gentile sends for Peter 
and asks to be told the message of Christ. And God responds to those who take the time and make the effort to seek him. And he responds by giving them more light, more truth, and meeting their spiritual need. And this principle is the how and why of our story today. Today we're looking at the story of Cornelius, a Roman soldier who eventually received the gospel from the Apostle Peter. Now, you may not realize it, but this is the longest story that Luke tells in the book of Acts. It's 77 verses long, and it extends all through chapter 10 and halfway through chapter 11. There are 67 verses in 6 and 7 that describe Stephen's speech and his death. That's the second longest story. And then recently we just covered the third longest story. That was Saul's conversion. 61 verses in chapters 9, 22, and 26. These three stories are long because of the important theme that they share in common. Breaking down the barriers as the gospel is taken from the Jews to the Gentiles. That, by the way, is us. Cornelius' story in chapters 10 and 11 is told, reviewed, and reviewed again to underscore how important it was for the gospel to be taken to the non-Jewish world. That spiritual veil between the Jews and the Gentiles was broken down as Cornelius, the Gentile, found salvation in the Jewish Messiah. Remember, the Jews considered the Gentiles to be unclean in every way. They were not fit to be given the salvation message of God. Remember, Jonah had resisted preaching to the Assyrian pagans. He didn't want them saved. He wanted them judged. And in general, that's how the Jews thought of all Gentiles. They believed they were, that the Jews believed that they were God's chosen people, And, of course, we know they are the chosen people. But they felt they were superior to the Gentiles culturally and spiritually. And I hope today we understand more that they are God's chosen people because God chose them. They're his chosen tool, first of all, to bring us salvation through Jesus Christ. And secondly, to take the word of that salvation to the rest of the world. And that's why they are chosen. So the salvation of the Gentiles had always been a part of God's plan. With the Jews as God's chosen light bearers, not special, not not superior to other people, just chosen for a very special holy purpose. Isaiah 49.6 tells us, tells the Jews, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But in light of the Jews' views of the Gentiles, it's no surprise that God had to kind of push them to leave Jerusalem to fulfill the great commission that they had been given by Christ. Some have even referred to chapters 10 and 11 here of, of the book of Acts as the Roman Pentecost, as the gospel pierces the heart of a Roman soldier that begins the explosion of the gospel in the world of the Gentiles. So I want us to start this morning by looking at, a, at Cornelius and looking at a description of him 
uh, as Cornelius the man. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10 gives us a a five-point description of Cornelius, beginning in chapter, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Verse 1 starts by describing Cornelius and his responsibility. He was a centurion. And a centurion literally means a ruler of a hundred. And Cornelius is a soldier, and he had a hundred men under his command. And the New, the New Testament contains five different references to a centurion, all of them favorable, by the way. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, we see a centurion whose faith amazed Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 39, a centurion there confesses that Jesus was the Son of God. In Acts chapter 23, Claudius Lysias saves Paul from death at the hands of the Jews. In Acts 27, Paul is again saved from death, this time by Roman soldiers, when Julius saves him and other prisoners as well. And then, of course, here in chapter 10, we see the fifth reference. A centurion was thought of as a a tough-minded, iron-disciplined, well-trained, brave-hearted soldier. That sounds kind of like a U.S. military guy, doesn't it? Cornelius was such a guy. In fact, Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman province. And Cornelius occupied a position of, of great responsibility. And he was, he was likely to have been a, a soldier's soldier to have risen to that rank. Secondly, as we describe Cornelius, we see he's kind of a religious guy. We see his religion, if you will. Both verse uh, 2 and again in verse 22, Cornelius is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And in verse 22, it says, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and come to his house and hear what you have to say in response to the call of Peter. So I guess we could say that Cornelius was a truth seeker, someone trying to find God, to get to know him better. That doesn't tell us exactly how Cornelius got exposed to the, the Jewish teachings about God, the one true God. Remember, the Romans had a lot of gods. But clearly, he was exposed to those teachings. And the Old Testament promises that God will honor those who seek after him. Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 7, Jeremiah 29, 13. And Jesus said in John 7, 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. That is, those who are willing to know the truth will have it revealed to them. And Cornelius was certainly and clearly one who was willing. And he was about to have God's truth revealed to him. Now, I want you to take note here that Cornelius is a religious Gentile. 
He's a God-fearing man, it says, but he's not necessarily a Christian. He hasn't heard the message of Christ yet. Remember last week, we we heard of Aeneas, and he was referred to as a, a certain man in the New King James. And you heard me tell you that it, that was an indication that he was not saved yet. Now, if you have the New King James with you, you'll notice in verse 1 that Cornelius is also referred to as a certain man. A lot of Gentiles were attracted to the moral and ethical standards of Judaism. Some even probably attended synagogues uh, meetings and listened to the Old Testament teachings, and that may account for how Cornelius heard those teachings. But to be converted to Judaism, they would have had to have undergone circumcision, uh, kind of a self-baptism, you will, for purification, and bring a sacrifice to the temple, requirements that probably kept a lot of seekers from converting to Judaism. Referred to as the proselytes of the gate, coming right to the gates of Judaism but never passing through, these folks were seated in a place separate from the Jews when they went to the synagogue. And they were not permitted to mix with the Jewish worshipers. They were still considered to be unclean. So, as you might guess, there was a a great chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles in those days. No Jew would visit a Gentile in the Gentile's home, nor would they invite a Gentile to their home. And yet here Peter is invited by Cornelius to visit him in his home. And we're going to see here that Peter was a little bit reluctant to do that. Uh, Those kind of things just weren't done in that day. Part of what we're looking at today is things are about to change. So thirdly, we want to look at Cornelius' reputation as we describe him. Verse 22 also speaks of the good reputation that Cornelius had. It says he was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Now that tells me he must have been a pretty remarkable guy. Not only was he a Gentile, he was a Roman soldier, he was the oppressor, but yet he was admired to some degree, by the Jewish community here. He was probably just, he was honest, and fair in his dealing with the Jewish people. He didn't seem to lord it over them with his military authority. Verse 27 indicates that his home was a gathering place for a lot of people. In fact, even though we'll, we'll see this later, I want to take you right now to that place and, and look at the text beginning at verse 24 of chapter 10. Peter is just now arriving at Cornelius' home. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? 
we see further that Cornelius was a righteous man. We see his righteousness. And an indication that he was, a, he was religious in more than just name only was the fact that it says he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. In other words, he, he practiced what he preached. He did his religious acts, if you will, the best that he knew how. The giving of alms to the poor and, and prayer were very important to the Jews. No doubt also to Cornelius. And there were Jews and Gentiles alike, I'm sure, that benefited from Cornelius' generosity. We also see that Cornelius was a man of reverence. The text here tells us that Cornelius didn't pray to God sometimes or once in a while. It says he prayed continually to God. A non-Christian, a non-Jew, with a regular devotional life. Hmm. That probably also meant that Cornelius was a regular attender of the prayer meetings or the prayer times at the synagogue. Even though he probably didn't know God personally, he was still committed to being there when prayers were offered. So we move on and, and we see Cornelius as he experiences a divine encounter, if you will. At about the ninth hour, it says, 3 o'clock p.m. This is another indication of his growing spirituality. It's found here in verses 3 and 4 where this divine encounter occurs. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Later in verses 30 and 31, Cornelius reveals that he was fasting and praying in his home when the angel came to him. He said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And your alms are remembered in the sight of God. The angel let Cornelius know that God had taken note of his prayers and his generosity. Now if I were to speculate a little bit here, I'd say that Cornelius might have been praying to God to reveal himself to him. And help him in in knowing him in a more personal way. And maybe the angel was God's answer to those prayers. But at least at the start, according to verse 4, Cornelius was confused and frightened. But no matter what Cornelius was thinking, the angel's message here was pretty clear. God was aware of Cornelius' righteous behavior and his reverent attitude, and he was responding to that. Don't misunderstand here. The angel did not come to save Cornelius. But he came to tell Cornelius how to find the answers that he was seeking. In spite of his righteous lifestyle, he still didn't know God. But the angel's visit was to put this Roman soldier in touch with someone who could provide the direction that he needed. 
This is a new direction. Cornelius is now taking a new direction in his life. And there are, uh, we need to look at two aspects of the angel's visit here. The first is the command that came from the angel. Verse 5 and 6. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. Now remember, we, we spoke last week of, of Peter staying with Simon the tanner and how different that was already. Because Simon the tanner would have been considered to be unclean because of his exposure to dead animal bodies. And yet Peter was doing something that Jews didn't normally do. He was spending time there with Simon the Tanner. But that's where he's located. Acts 11.14 gives us even more detail of what this angel told Cornelius that Peter would give him. And that is, he said, He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So if you want to summarize the information that we have here in chapters 10 and 11, it says that Cornelius is a God-fearing man who didn't know how to be saved. So an angel of the Lord came to him and told him to send for the apostle Peter, and Peter would give him a message that he needed to be saved. God gave Cornelius exact instructions how to find Peter. He knew what Cornelius needed. He knew where Peter was. He was with Simon the Tanner, and he knew where Simon the Tanner lived. God knew everything necessary to bring salvation message to Cornelius. God knows everything necessary to bring the salvation message to all of us. If you need to hear the message of salvation today, and you want to hear it, God can and will get that message to you. As a matter of fact, I think before the sermon's over today, you'll hear that message. In fact, he's already done that. You're about to learn what Cornelius learned to know he was saved. <coughs> Excuse me. Last week, we, again, we talked about how Peter spent his life as a, an instrument in the hands of the Lord. And when the Lord uses us to help another person find Christ, that means we too are instruments in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord is orchestrating all of those events, all those opportunities. The second aspect of the angel's visit I want us to look at is the compliance to the command that was given. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, that is Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius wasted no time. As soon as the angel left, he called together two of his household servants and a devout soldier and sent them off to Joppa to go find and retrieve Peter. Now, God could have saved Cornelius, obviously, without Peter. God didn't really need him any more than he needs us. But God was involving Peter for Peter's sake, not for Cornelius' sake. Peter needed to personally see 
God's offer of salvation to a Gentile. And he needed to be able to report this move of God with authority back to his contemporaries in Jerusalem, the rest of the apostles, the rest of the church. And there's something there that we can learn from that as well. Whenever God uses us to bring someone to Christ, there's something he wants us to learn in that process. So there's something for the person who is being saved to learn, but there's something for us, as we're the person that's connected to their life, to learn as well. So what does this mean to us today? What deductions, what kind of conclusions can we gain from Cornelius' experience? There are three observations I want to make as we, as we wrap up today. Observation number one is Peter's important role in the New Testament. I want you to look at some very important words that Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 19, Jesus told Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now over the last 2,000 years, there have been a lot of interpreters use an awful lot of ink trying to express their opinions of what the keys to the kingdom are. I don't have the final answer on that. But I think Peter's key ring would have held at least two keys. The first he used at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached the gospel of Christ to the Jews in Jerusalem, and we find that 3,000 were saved. I got to tell you, as a, as a preacher, I'd love to do that and see 3,000 people be saved. God could take me home right now. That would be a, a, a mountain high. But that was his first key to the kingdom. <coughs> the second key was here in Acts 10, used by Peter to open the door of salvation to the non Jewish world, beginning with the conversion of Cornelius and his household in Caesarea. Now, I I realize that the Apostle Paul is commonly seen frequently as the chief of the apostles. But it was Peter who was given the keys of the kingdom with which he used to offer Christ to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Obviously, Paul was used in a great way, and we'll find that out later, in taking the message of salvation to the Gentiles. But it was Peter who was given those keys to the kingdom and opened those doors. Observation number two is observing people following the light that is given by God. Now, I referred to that principle of more light a couple of times now. How God gives more light and more truth when we're faithful to the light that we have. Now, Cornelius didn't have all the light that he needed, but he responded faithfully to the light that he did have. And God responded then by giving him more light. His prayers, 
his generosity, his righteousness indicated that he had a desire to fear and honor God with what he did know. But those works could not make him righteous before God. But verse 4 tells us they got God's attention. And God sent Cornelius more light. So his greatest desire, a desire to know God, could be realized. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19. Romans 18, I'm sorry, Romans 1, chapter verse 18 to 20, tells us that God's character is clearly displayed in nature. And mankind is without excuse. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Those who respond to what they see of God in creation receive more light. Our third and last observation here is a scary one, and that is the possibility of good men being lost. In these early chapters of Acts, there are three good men, three religious men, the Ethiopian eunuch, whom we didn't study, Saul of Tarsus, and here Cornelius, the three of them seeking God the best they knew how. The Ethiopian was diligently reading Isaiah. Saul was zealously persecuting the church because he thought that's what God's work was. And here we see Cornelius, a God-fearing Roman soldier who prayed and, and helped others and was generous. But as good as they were, all three of these good men had one thing in common. They were lost because they didn't know Christ and his salvation. The sad fact is, there are a lot of good, even godly type of people outside the church and even inside the church today who mistake their good works, their regular attendance, even their generosity for salvation. If Cornelius could have been saved by his good works, he wouldn't have needed to call Peter and hear the gospel. That speaks to the need of all good men and women, of course, to hear and respond to the gospel of salvation in Christ alone. There is no salvation outside of Christ. So I just want to ask this morning. Last week we spent some time in, in communion. 
and we're reminded that communion is a time of self-examination. Well, this morning I want to call you to a little bit more self-examination and ask you this. Are you a good person? Are you doing everything you know how to live a godly and religious life? But you haven't yet placed your faith and your trust in the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he did for you on the cross? Are you just as lost as Cornelius was? God has provided you an opportunity today to hear what's necessary for you to be saved. He's provided an opportunity for all of us to receive more light by responding to the light that we now have. So I want to encourage us all to take the opportunity that God is giving us right now through this study of Acts to understand his gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ and the work that he did for us, the sacrifice and the price that he paid for us on the cross. And through his resurrection, so that we might be forgiven, the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. And yet he paid that price, those wages, on the cross. And he resurrected so that we might have eternal life with God the Father. So I want to encourage us again to take that opportunity to understand the gospel, the good news of Christ, and encourage you, if you haven't, pray to him this morning. and Place your faith in Christ alone. And like Cornelius, be saved. Would you pray with me? Lord, I think, I think you've made it very clear for all of us. As you state right here in your word, we are without excuse. We see in creation your divine nature, your incredible almighty power. And now this morning we have heard verbally your gospel. Lord, I pray that every soul present in this room has already responded properly, appropriately to your light by pursuing more light. Lord, and I know that if they do, that you will offer more light, more insight, more personal knowledge of yourself, more intimate knowledge of yourself. I look forward to that for all of us. Lord, as keepers of that incredible knowledge, may we not be selfish with it. May we not sin by hiding it under a bushel. May we take it with us as we leave here today. And not only through the words of our mouth, but the actions of our lives. Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior to everyone that we contact. Lord, I pray for this church, for this body, even as we look forward in anticipation of a shepherd coming to lead, to train, to encourage this body. Pray for that person, for that man. We look forward to what you're going to do to and through this church.
in the days and the months and the years ahead. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.